Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and health care. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Tara Lagu. But first, we generally like to check in on health news. And Harlan, you forwarded me an article uh, from Science that just came out talking about the use of both genetic interventions as well as genetic screening with embryos. And this is a very provocative survey. So I was just wondering if you could share with us what your high-level thoughts are on this. Yeah, I'd sent you something, Howie, about this article that came out. It's called Public Views on Polygenic Screening of Embryos. That may sound a little esoteric and, and a little nerdy, but what, what they did was they, they went out and they tried to understand what the public's views might be on some of these new technologies that are enabling us to characterize the genomic heritage, essentially, of, of these embryos. And, and the idea that we're on the cusp of a really potentially interesting and morally fraught era where we can both characterize the traits of individuals, genetic traits of individuals before they're born, and even have the opportunity to intervene on them. And, you know, they were likening this to, to saying, you know, there, there may be a sea change going on in public views that may affect the adoption of these technologies in ways that have been unanticipated. Some people might have thought, I thought that people weren't ready for this. Look, people won't even take vaccines. So, you know, I'm thinking people really want scientists you know, working with genomes and snipping and and doing editing, and I thought maybe maybe not so much. But when in this in this uh, survey, they ask, "What was your willingness to use a service like this? Like, you know, being able to go in and and do this polygenic risk evaluation? You know, sort of looking at the genomics, and then what about gene editing? You know, this is really going into the genome and rearranging the genes, or silencing some, or you know, doing this and that, which can actually change the function of the genome and create different proteins. And, you know, what I was surprised to see was that about a third of the people said that they were willing to use gene editing and, and almost uh, as much as a half, particularly and greater among younger people, were interested in this sort of characterization of the genome. And I just found this absolutely uh, amazing. And this was also true. They stratified it by what people's education was and higher education individuals actually were more avid for these new technologies. We're spending some time as a profession talking about the moral issues around this, but maybe not enough, maybe not enough because, you know, if the public is this ready for this, so many people are thinking this is, you know, okay, we're going to have to figure out what parameters are around this. What can you know, are we looking for genes for intelligence? And if your baby doesn't have, you know, those, right. you're either going to do some editing or how about athletic ability or, or, or good looks? Or I don't know what, I mean, I'm just saying these as, for example, no, I, I, our minds go to the, the fatal genetic diseases. That's where it will start. Can we sure. save a, you know, a, a, someone like that? But the, the potential for, uh, you know, other areas is, is immense. Look, I mean, you and I grew up at a time where the term eugenics was in the news a lot, and um, it, it quickly became something that you don't talk about because, you know, culling the herd or picking and choosing who gets to survive and who doesn't is, is not considered our value system. But 
at root, this can get there very quickly. And I think the, the beauty of the field of ethics and really why I appreciate you highlighting this article is that it's not meant to be prescriptive. It's not meant to tell us what to do, but it's meant to illuminate issues and get people talking about them and understanding it more. And I agree with you, Harlan. I mean, in, in the 24 hours or so since you first brought it to my attention and I've thought about it more, we should be having a lot of conversations about this now and not waiting for commercial entities to be already building business models around it without the public understanding the consequences. Well, what lengths will parents go to ensure that their child has every advantage? And, and one of the other questions, by the way, on, on this survey had to do about the ethics of SAT prep. How do you think that advantage is, is it ethical? Would you use it for your children? And, you know, in that case, almost same, you know, 70% or so said that that, that that was acceptable. Much higher percentage, but higher, again, it's but another still. form of advantage, yeah. right? It's another form yeah. of advantage saying that, you know, this isn't just by the you know, grid of your own effort, but that you're willing to be using, you know, spending money to get advantage. One of the points that the authors made, Harlan, which I thought was really good, is that, you know, what you're basically doing is permanently embedding the wealth, both in terms of gene code as well as physical money, into a family hierarchy so that over time it grows and everybody else falls to the wayside. It, it can create greater disequities over time. Yeah, when, maybe one time we'll have Jennifer Miller back on and some bioethicists and really have a, yeah. a deeper discussion about this. Great. So, hey, we have a great guest today and a super topic. So, uh, Howie, take it away. Dr. Tara Legoo is a professor of medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. She is a pharmacist, a hospitalist and a health services researcher focusing on how to improve health care for patients, particularly those with disabilities. Her work has been published in journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Annals of Internal Medicine, and the Journal of Hospital Medicine. She's also Senior Deputy Editor for the Journal of Hospital Medicine, and in 2019, she was awarded the Society of Hospital Medicine Award for Excellence in Research and was named one of the American College of Physicians' Top Hospitalists for 2019. She got her bachelor's degree from Purdue University in pharmacy and then did her MD, MPH degree at Yale in the School of Medicine and the School of Public Health, which is when I first met her more than 25 years ago, if it can be believed. She completed her residency in general internal medicine at Brown and then was an RWJ Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar at the University of Pennsylvania from 2005 to 2008. So first of all, welcome to the show, Dr. Legoo, Tara. Uh, you've been a consistent investigator and advocate of the special challenges that face those of us who live with disabilities. Can you tell us what first got you to focus on this very often neglected population? Sure thing. Well, but first I have to say thank you, Howie and Harlan, for having me on this podcast. This is a great invitation. And what that intro didn't say was all the sort of successes in my career that I owe to you two. So um, thank you two for all you've done for me. You have been incredible mentors and friends for years. So the story is I was actually, I as you could you said from the intro, I work as a hospitalist. I was seeing patients in the hospital in 2012, actually. I was discharging a woman from the hospital who had these two very attentive daughters. 
And they were up to date on all of her health information. They were all over the discharge paperwork. And I noticed as I was talking to them that she needed to see a subspecialist, a urologist actually, and that she hadn't seen the doctor. It had been written in multiple discharge summaries that she needed to see this doctor. And I said to one of her daughters, I'm like, it's just strange because you two are so attentive. You're just so wonderful. You take such good care of her. Why haven't you taken her to see a urologist? And the daughter said, well, doctor, I take her to see a urologist, but I can't find one who will see a patient who uses a wheelchair. Initially, I said, oh, no, there's a law. I'm a doctor. Let me make some calls, you know. But when I started calling around, I found out it was true that there was no doctor within 100 miles of her house who would see her unless she came in an ambulance and was transferred from her wheelchair to an exam table by EMS. That would have cost her family more than $1,000 out of pocket. And that moment I was like, you know, I'm a, I was a rubber with Johnson clinical scholar. Like you two trained me. I, you, <laughs> you taught me like, if there's a problem, measure it. And so I started to do a study where we called doctors all over the country and we asked them if they would see a patient who used a wheelchair. And what we that was the secret yeah. shopper study, right? And can you just explain for our listeners how you do that? Cause it's, it's fascinating. It's a method where you, call pretending to be, in our case, we were pretending to be doctors making an appointment for the very patient that I had tried to get this appointment for, you know, a year before or whatever. And we just, we had a script that we followed and this is what they do for housing or other kinds yep. of discrimination. You have a script that you follow and you answer the questions and according to that script, and we sort of tailored, we had a, a committee that helped us tailor that script to different kinds of doctors so we could call different kinds of doctors all over. And we we would just say like, hi, I'm a doctor calling from such and such. And I have this patient and here are her limitations. And can I make an appointment for her at your office? And what we found in calling doctors all over the country was that 20% of doctors nationally would not make an appointment for a patient who used a wheelchair. Wow. Very few of those were because you couldn't enter the building though. It was a, it was a very small number that was about ramps. It was far more often, it was about that they were unable to transfer the patient from a wheelchair to an exam table, or in some cases, they said they didn't have staff trained to do that, or they they just didn't have people in place who had sort of the knowledge. And so as a result, although 20% said absolutely not, of the rest, about half said that they would transfer the patient in a way that is considered unsafe. And so, and some of those that couldn't go in the paper, but some of those were just, we talk, we're talking to the office manager and we're saying, okay, this patient's coming, they use a wheelchair. And the office manager would say, no problem. We've got a parking attendant. They can come in, they can help transfer the patient. And we're, <laughs> we're all sitting there kind of, wait, the parking attendant? If this were you, if you were that patient, how would you feel about that? Right, right. Unbelievable. Well, you know, uh, you're doing such important work. I I got really, I think, my best orientation to this issue, working with Gretchen Berland, an internist at Yale now who is at UCLA as a clinical scholar, who ended up putting cameras on wheelchairs for people with disability and produced a movie called Rolling that really show what the world looked like from their perspective. And uh, it was just so striking to me. I had the privilege of working with her on that. She won awards with it. It got a uh, shown in many different venues. I hope that it was good for education, but I do feel that there's so much more to be done. Your work is really extending that. You did 
a, a survey where you're trying to elicit themes. I mean, you actually did a qualitative research where you're trying to understand perspectives. And you said that many physicians expressed explicit bias towards people with disabilities. Explicit bias. Uh, we all familiar with kind of the implicit bias and the idea that sort of un unintentionally or people, you know, not meaning to are then made aware of some things that they're doing, which are causing harms. But can you just expand a little bit on that? Because I was struck by by that statement. Sure. Absolutely. So a couple comments on what you just said. One is, yes, Gretchen Berlin's if you haven't seen the movie Rolling, see it. You can. It's, I believe, free on YouTube, and it's an incredible take on what yeah, it is like amazing. to move through the world if you are a wheelchair user. She actually won a MacArthur Genius Grant in part because of that work, and I, I do think it changed minds about what the world must be like if you are a person with a disability. So I think that was extremely important work that laid the foundation for some of the work that we do. And honestly, I've been meaning to call Dr. Berlin because I think we need to return to some of her methods uh, moving forward, but we'll talk about that later. So, I, so after the study in 2013, I spent a couple of years, I wrote, I wrote a, a sounding board for the New England Journal with Lisa Izzoni. And in that I said like, you know, this is about, we've got to get accessible tables into clinics. We've got to get scheduling systems up and running so that we know when patients with disabilities are coming. And then in 2015, we did a study where we looked at clinics that had accessible tables and clinics that didn't. And we asked patients about their perceived quality of care and how often they were examined. And after I had spent, you know, two or three years talking about this is all about tables, this is all about procedures, I thought my New England Journal article was going to change the world. That study where we looked at two clinics with and without accessible tables had a very interesting finding. And that was that perceived quality of care was no different in clinics with and without accessible tables for people with disabilities. And they were not more likely to be examined by their doctor. So all of a sudden, my mantra that this was all about equipment was really not proving true. At that moment, Lisa Izzoni, my collaborator at Harvard, and I talked about this and we were like, you know, this is about more than equipment, more than training. We have an attitude problem. And of course, Gretchen Berlin's work already told us that, right? We we knew that. There were real attitudinal biases, like problems and biases against people with disabilities based on the work that, that we saw in that movie. But what at that point, we said, okay, let's write a grant to think about how to study this in a more systematic way. And that was the grant that we proposed that was a series of focus groups where we, you know, had doctors in a virtual room talking about their attitudes towards people with disabilities, followed by a survey, followed by a series of kind of interviews with advocates about what we should do next. One of the things that was striking to me is that physicians with disabilities are also discriminated against. And one of the observations I've had being on the admissions committee, the med school for many years, and, and just through experiences, that we have underrepresentation among the physician corps of physicians with disabilities. I, I remember well us discussing in the admissions committee whether somebody who is deaf could become a physician or how they could become a physician and so on. And thankfully, there are accommodations. But I'm wondering, even though that wasn't your paper, if you could comment on what are the, the structural barriers to improving this right now? You're right. This is a multi-layered problem, right? So this is about, we have 
not enough people with disabilities who work in medicine. We have potentially have biases in some medical schools against admitting people with disabilities. That may be in the form of technical standards that don't allow people to even apply or get in. It may be more subtle. Then we have the problem that we don't include education about how to work with people with disabilities as part of medical education. It really doesn't earn a lot of time in the curriculum. We're all too often told like there's just not time to add to the curriculum. It's not recognized by accreditation agencies like LCME as being an important topic that medical schools should include in their curriculum. It's not part of graduate medical education. There's a hidden curriculum that gets conveyed right. about attitudes and biases that, that we learn going through. And then you have the additional problem of the system itself is structured in a way that disadvantages both people who are trying to provide care as a person with a disability or receive care as a person with a disability. So we have, you know, problems of education, culture, access. It's it's multi-layered and a health system that actually disincentivizes taking the time to provide accommodations. So this is a this is a huge problem and I'm gonna have to work on it for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just add Harlan and I just had a conversation over the last sort of 12 hours by email about this very issue that our system incentivizes against care for the most complicated patients. Yeah, and I actually just published an op-ed in Undark earlier this month about this exact issue that and I should describe the findings of the focus groups before I even talk about that. But basically, so we sat three focus groups of physicians chosen for geographic diversity, for subspecialty diversity, for diversity in men versus women and other kinds of characteristics. And we asked them questions about their attitudes towards people with disability. And what we found was shocking that, you know, over the course, and these were granted, these were two hour long focus groups. We asked a lot of questions but towards the end, when we asked physicians, like, well, so what, are, what is your approach towards working with people with disabilities? In two of the focus groups, the conversation really derailed and physicians in the group started talking to each other. And one said, well, I've thought about this a lot. And this now I just tell people with disabilities who call me that I'm no longer taking new patients. And then another doctor in the group says, no, no, no. I say, I don't take your insurance. Another person says, no, 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 you can't say that. I say, you need more care than I can give you, so I'm not the doctor for you. This is, yep. We had research staff, and the, to just describe how upsetting this was, we had research staff who had to watch these again and again because they were helping with transcription, and more than one came to me in tears because they felt so discouraged and upset about the attitudes that they saw physicians portraying in these groups. What's the next proximate thing we can do to address this? Because this is really blatant discrimination. It is, I mean, the medical profession, you also say at another point here, how this really violates the general principles of the, what medicine's all about. I mean, that this exists, but by the way, there are people with disabilities. We could go in a lot of different areas too. people with obesity. There's lots of groups that get kind of this, but this disabilities issue I think is, is central because it does, it takes more time. It's it, they've got to be accommodations to be able to get the information. So what what's your milestone for this year? What do you what what are we going to get done this year on this topic? Well, I will say that this 
Nobody goes to medical school with the purpose of discriminating against vulnerable populations. We all interview people for medical school all the time, and everybody goes in really idealistic. So what happens between the moment they enter medical school and the moment that they're seeing someone in their practice as a full attending, facing the problems and demands of our existing healthcare system and making this terrible, probably illegal, certainly unethical, and really you know, kind of vile decision. And I think the answer is there's a whole series of things from education to culture to, you know, the pressures of having to see a certain number of patients in a very limited time to a reimbursement system that devalues talking to patients, accommodating patients and spending time with patients. And so we have to work on all of those things. Whenever anybody asks me, what can I do today? My answer is, learn disability etiquette, speak to people with disabilities in the way they would like to be spoken to, always ask, ask people how they would like to be identified, ask people how they would, how they would like to be referred to, ask about accommodations. I think making any interaction as patient-centered as possible is one quick thing. (laughs) Also an issue here is that some disabilities are overt, easy to observe and recognizable. And some people have disabilities as how I was suggesting that could be hearing or other things that, you know, are never even inquired about. I'm sure that this adds risk. I mean, you know, the ability to elicit the right information, the, to do the proper examination, even decisions about sending people for testing, you know, can be influenced by people's thoughts about how difficult that could be. You raise great points. There are visible and invisible disabilities. We need to accommodate all disabilities. We are required by law. One of the things that health systems can do, and this is something that we as clinicians can push for, is to collect information on disability and need for accommodation. This is something that can be incorporated if you use Epic into the like Epic MyChart app. It can be incorporated into, and we're actually working with Epic to incorporate collection and documentation of disability and accommodation needs and having designated fields for that that can be built into the system so that we can at least know who these patients are and know when they're coming. The fact that we don't know who they are and don't know when they're coming is part of the reason that we do such a bad job of caring for people with disabilities. By the way, it's also part of the reason that this is an unacknowledged health disparity population because we can't even do kind of the basic health disparities research to know where the gaps are. So, I mean, I think in the short and long term, advocating for more data collection so we know who two people are, where they are, and what their accommodation needs are. From there, working to incorporate into clinical workflows accommodations, including accommodations for hearing, communication, mobility, mental health, and other disabilities. I mean, there's a there's a wide range of things that we have to do. And I think on any given day, any given clinician can make a difference just by acknowledging the humanity of the person in front of them, having some sense of the etiquette and asking people about what their needs are and how they want to be spoken to. But what is the role, do you think, of telemedicine in this world? Because it did seem to me that there's a possibility that for people who have mobility issues, that that not, not that you would want to rely exclusively on it for any pa- given patient, you have to calibrate it to the need. But this still could be, as we've moved into this era, quite a big help for some people. I definitely think telemedicine was a breakthrough in some ways. And there certainly are conditions that you can 
manage almost exclusively with telemedicine. Some of the mental health sort of care has improved. The access has improved during the COVID era because of telehealth, I believe. Um, But there's lots of reasons why people have to be seen in person, why people still need radiology and procedures and all kinds of things. And, And so I think balancing when and how we use telemedicine and a whole realm of research is going into that. Like, how do we best use telehealth? How do we use it in a way that's most effective? And and I think there are times when certainly for people with mobility disabilities, that is an advantage and not having to take three hours of public transportation to get to an appointment is a huge, huge deal. On the other hand, I think if it means that we then exclusively see people with disabilities yeah. by telemedicine, then we have a problem. And so it's 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 a matter of finding the right the right balance. I guess my other question as I left this is the attitudinal barriers and the, the bias that was expressed in our focus groups was a huge driver of some of the, you know, publicity that we've received, some of the recognition the study's gotten. And so to me, I don't think we can leave this topic without saying we've got to address attitudes and bias on the part of physicians and other healthcare providers. And I think some of that's education. Some of that is that people feel very unable to accommodate people with disabilities because they just don't even know the basics. So some of it's education, some of it's culture, some of it, as you mentioned earlier, is bringing more people with disabilities into our profession so that those folks can help teach the rest of us and, you know, set a precedent that this is part of normal life. And I think that's really important too. Um, And I think there's more to do. I think we need to figure out what exactly was driving some of the the comments that we got in that study. And some of it is the incentives in our system that we have to address. Some of it is, and this has been a big topic of debate. If you have a person who needs an accommodation, should you be paid more for that visit? Should that alone make it a higher complexity visit? And there are people in the disability community who say yes, and people who say no. The people who say no say like, you know, I, I am, I should, it should not be an extra cost to accommodate me. On the other hand, for the physicians, if they could code for a higher complexity visit, they might be more willing to see the person. It might be. And so I think finding the balance in that for us and figuring out how to incentivize people without being disrespectful is really important. Let's be honest, like for most people who encounter the healthcare system, whether you have a disability or not, it can often be unpleasant, inconvenient, frustrating, sure. difficult. And so it's only the people with disabilities who experience the most extreme version of that. But all of us get the downsides of the system we live and work in. And I guess my feeling is there are lots of reasons to improve our system, not just because it'll help people with disabilities, but because it'll actually benefit all of us. And that includes the the physicians right. who are providing care. You know, the Nobel laureate, Pearl Buck, quoted as saying something along the lines of uh, the the test of a civilization is how it treats its helpless members. And by that statement alone, we're failing right now that test. And and just really so pleased that you're doing the work that illuminates this problem and helps us address solutions for it. And uh, could not be more pleased to call you a colleague and a friend and that you are helping to achieve greater justice. So thank you. And thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. Let me say, I think that I 
got a lot of my values and my approach to my work from the two of you. So thank you for all that you've done for me and for your your mentorship over the years, because I really do think you've set a, a precedent for how to to go about research. I, You know, Harlan, like, I don't know, 15 years ago, you wrote a, an editorial that was called Be Bold or something, Ask the Tough Questions. And I mean, this this question from the start was always bold, right? Um, no health system that you work in is all that enthusiastic when you start uncovering problems, even if they're national problems. So uh, it required a little boldness. So I appreciate no, that you two actually was it was it was be brave. It was be, oh, it be was brave. Be brave. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But be brave and bold. I like that together. <laughs> it, what a pleasure to work work with you over the years. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. I'm so appreciative. It's so good to see you two. And like, this should not be the only way we see each other. I know. We'll make exactly. we'll make plans. Well, that was a great interview. I, I really enjoyed hearing her, and she's working on such an important area. Let's let's pivot to the next part, Howie. And you, um, you know, had I think listened carefully to this State of the Union address, and uh, you know, it, it was quite a spectacle. Basically, the back and forth and the yelling and all that kind of stuff. But amidst that, there was some really substantive things that were discussed, this issue about the dispute between uh, the president and Democrats and congressional uh, GOP over whether, well, what will the parties do with regard to Medicare and Social Security? And this issue about saying that, you know, there may be some cuts and and there's going to be needed cuts. And anyway, can you bring some clarity to this? Because there just seems like a lot of smoke here. And I'm I'm actually confused about it a little bit. Yeah, it's very frustrating because so there's without going into too much detail, there's multiple parts in Medicare, but there's one which is, uh, you know, one of the biggest parts for the hospital fund, which will run out of money sometime in the next decade. It might be as soon as four years from now, but it'll definitely happen if we don't intervene. And that would be a very bad thing because it will be just like the debt ceiling, just like a lot of things. It could create chaos for an awful lot of people. So we want to avoid that. Um, And both parties have solutions to this. um, And and they're not even consistent within the parties, by the way. But the problem is that both parties have on the margin cut Medicare at times. Um, And what do they mean by cutting Medicare? Most of the time, what they mean is just cutting spending on Medicare. And as you and I have talked about, there are parts of Medicare where we have wasted money, where we have overspent for things, where we've overpaid for things, created profitable opportunities that were in excess. And so on the one hand, we want us to run a Medicare program that's more efficient. Um, I think we all understand that if you were to raise the age of Medicare entitlement or if we were to stop covering some things in Medicare, that's a more legitimate definition of what it means to be cutting Medicare. Um, And I think we all probably would also agree that raising taxes is not cutting Medicare and that also could fix the Medicare problem. And I just think our representatives and our president need to have a lot more clarity about what their goals are for the Medicare program, because I don't think that you or I want to see Medicare go bankrupt. I think most people would like that not to happen. And there's basically two solutions to it. One is to cut spending on it. The other is to raise taxes. And I think we need to be clear on what we're proposing and not to demonize one party or the other if, in fact, their main goal is just to make Medicare sustainable. Well, and some of us think, 
you know, how fast can we track to reducing the age for Medicare? I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's right. That's right. You know, so this, this debate's going about, you know, almost in an opposite direction of what I think a lot of us think can happen in the country. And, and, you know, as we talked to Jeff Sonnenfeld about that, you know, this, this healthcare in this country is such a big tax on businesses. Imagine yeah. what could happen with regard to innovation and the flourishing of business. If you were to lift off that responsibility from businesses and put it where it appropriately sits, which is within government, and and let government ensure that people aren't going to be harmed by getting sick and have that financial toxicity and risk and and concern. So, but yeah, it's it's interesting to me that even while there is some rumbling still, I mean, about trying to get more people covered, there's some people who seemingly want to cut back on the coverage and make it more difficult. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at HMKYale. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. You know, Howie, how many people graduated from that program over the years? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I would say that we're probably somewhere in the thousand range, more than a thousand. Wow. It's wow. getting up there. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are absolutely amazing. We're fortunate to work with them. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.